you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Ezra, chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. If you'd like to follow along. Ezra, chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheel, Etiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and because and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Dozadak made a beginning together with the rest of the kingsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house had being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not he- distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Please be seated. Thank you, Chris, uh, for reading scripture this morning. And if you haven't already done so, we can turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3, where we just had our scripture reading. And uh, you might think, wow, what an interesting passage for... (laughs) A new year. I mean, this is all we're in the Old Testament. What is this? Uh, but I, I challenge you to uh, bear with me as we go through this, uh, as we uh, begin a new year. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I, I pray that today you would open our hearts to receive your word, open our minds to understand it. And God, I pray that uh, as we begin this new year, I pray that we would um, we think about how we are building up one another, how we are praising you, how we are worshiping you. Uh, and God, I pray that uh, each one of us will uh, be thankful for the year that we had last year and look forward to uh, things coming this year. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. So here we are. It's a new year. And I was kind of disappointed because I was hoping Barbara Walters was going to introduce us this year. I could say I'm Barbara Walters and this is 2020. But she didn't. So uh, if you're familiar with the 2020 show from years ago. Anyway, sorry. Dad joke. I had to say it. Um, 
But it is a new year, a new decade. Uh, to some people, they talk about, is it this year is a new decade? Is not? Well, we've reached the 20s again, okay? It's the roaring 20s. So we can be excited. <laughs> if that's how it's going to be, I don't want them to hit the 30s because, you know, the Great Depression. No. Uh, but it is a new decade. And uh, I have one more year to go until I reach the point where I've lived longer on this side of 2000 than I have on that side of 2000. So some of you still have some ways to go. But I have, I'm, I'm almost at that point where Y2K was uh, longer away than I actually was before. Anyway, the point is 1990 was 30 years ago. And this past weekend, Cheyenne and I were talking about how things seem to modern generations. And she was reading an article, and I was like, man, that's interesting. Uh, she said, uh, the article said that, our children, our two older boys, will remember President Obama the way I remember President Reagan. Uh, and I thought, whoa, that's so bizarre. That the 90s, talking about the 90s to my kids is like talking about the 60s to my generation. <laughs> like it's before our time. That's so weird. And I'm thinking, but no, it's the 90s. And I know some of you are like, no, it's the 60s. What's, what's the big deal? Uh, but it is. It's a new year. It's a new uh, decade, if you will. It, it, it's everything new. New challenges. Uh, uh, they, they, I saw a post that said Chris, uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's are the days of the most dad jokes of the whole year. Because on New Year's Eve, the dad jokes are things like, well, this is the last time I'm going to tell you goodnight. This is the last time I'm going to do this this year. This is the last time. And then New Year's Day, you know what it is. It's the first time I said hi to you this year. This is the first time I opened the coffee this year. This is the first time I opened the refrigerator. You know, it's like a bunch of mess. As I was thinking about what I wanted to share this morning, my mind kept going to this idea of beginning. And no, we're not studying the creation story, but I just kept thinking about beginnings. So I did a little research about some beginnings of what we now have as famous companies. From starting in a garage or maybe having a few dollars, some of the biggest companies in the world have had some pretty humble beginnings. For example, in Seattle in the early 90s, Jeff quit his job at an investment bank and he began working in his garage. He developed software to publish an online bookstore. The company sold its first book online in 1995. A few years later, it also started selling CDs those are compact discs, kids. Anyway, uh, and then moved on to videos. Today, Jeff is considered the richest man in the world with a value of $110 billion. His company, called Amazon, is estimated to be $810 billion. Here's another one. Two college dropouts, guys named Bill and Paul, started working in a garage in Albuquerque in 1975. They formed a company that worked with microprocessors and software, calling it Microsoft. Their first product was called Basic, and it ran on the Altair 8800 personal computer. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody have one of those? <laughs> okay. Uh, today, Bill Gates is worth an estimated $108 billion. During the same time frame, two other college dropouts, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, wanted to make computers small enough for people to have. So they went to work in Jobs' family garage in Cupertino, California. Now it's called Silicon Valley. And, of course, now we have Apple computers worth $205 billion. Uh, here's an, uh, Larry and Sergey decided to test a website search engine that they called Backrub in 1995. They wanted to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. They would later, thankfully, change the name from Backrub to Google, who is now a household name. I'm glad it's not called Backrub. <laughs> probably worth a Google, probably worth a Backrub. Yeah, no. <laughs> in 1978, a college dropout and his girlfriend borrowed $45,000 from family and friends and they opened a food store in Austin, Texas called Saferway. Soon the couple, John and Renee, got booted out of their apartment and decided to move into the store that they built. There was no shower stall, so they bathed using commercial dishwasher, which had an attached water hose. Two years later, they came together with two other grocery store owners in hoping of opening up a chain. In 1980, they opened the first Whole Foods Market and then... We know the story, Whole Foods. 
Uh, two more. In 1892, with $32 in his pocket, William arrived in Chicago and began selling baking powder, offering customers complimentary gum with each purchase. William quickly realized how popular the gum was, so he ditched the cans of baking soda, and William Wrigley became a success. His name is now placed on one of the most iconic ballparks in the United States. And lastly, in the early 1900s, a guy by the name of Harland dropped out of seventh grade to help his family. His father died. His mother was straining to keep the family going. So between the ages of 15 and 40, Harland worked on the farm. He worked as a streetcar conductor in Indiana. He served in the Army. He worked as a fireman for railroads. And he ran service stations in Kentucky. And it was there in those service stations that Harlan Sanders perfected his recipe of deep-frying chicken. And we have Colonel Sanders' uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, something I learned from all of these stories was to either have a really nice garage or to drop out of school at some point. So I'm pushing my kids to drop out. No, I'm not. I'm not. All of these major corporations and businesses that we use so much today had quite really humble beginnings. I mean, almost everything great had a small beginning. When we talk about the Christmas story, what a humble beginning for the Savior of the world. Because you've got to start at the beginning. So this year, 2020, we have another beginning. And I don't know what last year held for you, but I know that 2020 is now laid before us as a beginning. In our scripture reading this morning, we heard the story of the return of the children of Israel back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. And with the return begins this construction, reconstruction of a temple. And I would say that there are times in our lives when we need a new beginning with God. Maybe during this last year, you failed the Lord terribly through deliberate rebellion or through sin. Maybe you drifted carelessly into the world and its ways, and in doing that, you started to neglect the things of God. And so now you find yourself looking back and saying, yeah, I'm not as close to God as I should be. Maybe there was a trial or a disappointment that caused you to drift along, and you don't have that close fellowship with the Lord or that close fellowship with his people, and so you need a new beginning. And you may wonder, is this even possible? I mean, is it possible to start over? Is it possible to take a new step? I mean, and if it is, where do you start? Because the thought of a new beginning is scary. Just this weekend, I was looking at, okay, what is something I'm going to do this year as far as my physical health is concerned? And I'm thinking, I can do this exercise or I can do this diet. And I'm looking at it going, <laughs> it's scary. Give me a donut, you know? Like, I, I, I want to make something new. I don't want to, I, I, it's scary, but I don't want to risk failing. But I'm not content where I am. And so like the children of Israel, I've come to realize that the idols of Babylon can't satisfy the soul. So maybe you're so dissatisfied with Babylon that you're willing to uproot yourself and, and make the journey back to Jerusalem. But when you get there, the land is shambles it's a pile of rubble and in our spiritual life how do we begin again with God so this chapter this morning I want to show us four things about these beginnings the first one is doesn't matter how low you are it's always possible to begin new it doesn't matter how low you are it's always possible to begin new and if you were to study the nation of Israel, this is Ezra chapter 3. If you were to put the timeline or what's going on, uh, you'll know that this is the end of the captivity. And you notice that Israel had hit an all-time low. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen captive to the Assyrian army somewhere around 700 B.C., 720. The southern kingdom of Judah fell to Babylon in the 580s B.C., and in, in the fall, we studied the book of Daniel, and we saw a lot of history through there. And we, we heard about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. Seventy years at the end of that captivity, out of the blue, a guy by the name of King Cyrus, he's mentioned here in the chapter, actually allows the Jewish people to go back to their homeland. And so Ezra is the story of the children coming back. Daniel stays behind. 
Esther is behind, like, they there, but Ezra is part of the group that comes home. And according to history, almost 50,000 Jews respond to this journey back. They gave up the lives that they had in Babylon, or Persia, if you will, and they returned back to Jerusalem. And when they get home, it's not the homeland that the old-timers talked about. Fifty years, over 50 years of war had ravaged the land. The capital city is in ruins. And I don't know about you, but when you go back to something that it's been a while since you've been at, I mentioned the church that my dad is at. It's actually the same church that he started in 1988. And I was a part when I was a little kid, and we actually, the auditorium that we built, and, or that they built, and the fellowship hall that we spent Christmas in, it was part of my childhood. And going back to it, it was very awkward. Like, whoa, that hallway is a lot smaller than I remember. That bathroom is really small. What, I remember it so much because I was so much smaller when I went through it. But when you get back, it's like, this is not what I remember. To make matters worse, you see in verse number uh, three, fear was on them for the peoples of the land. There was this growing hostile people that had moved into the area. And now here comes the Jews back to go into their homeland and they don't really like them. So there's this hostility. And so the Jews return, and they feel like immediately they have to be on guard. Like it's, uh, uh, mm, there's this spiritual low point. There's no temple. There's no sacrifices. There's no records of people feeling as though we're spiritually encouraged. I guess you could say that the people were a spiritual low point. However, the Lord had told Jeremiah many years before in Jeremiah 33, he said this, In this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, it's interesting, Jeremiah wrote it long before it happened, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land, as it first says the Lord. Even the phrase, give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you haven't noticed in verse 11 of our chapter today, that's exactly what they say. See, God told the people a number of years before that they're going to be punished if you don't change your ways. And then he sends prophet after prophet after prophet telling them, hey, this is going to happen. You're going to be put into captivity. But in Jeremiah, he also, and others, he also promised them they're not going to be utterly destroyed, but they're going to come back. And here in Jerusalem, God promises to return them back to the fortunes that they had at first. I wonder... If someone had listened to Jeremiah, he would know that this promise from God would be kept. So for us, over and over again, we have a God who says, you can start anew. It doesn't matter what it was. You can start again. I've promised to always be with you. Whether it is to his people corporately or whether it is to us as individuals, if we've fallen into sin, our God is a God of new beginnings. You see that throughout Scripture. King David, one of the greatest kings of Israel, fell into a dark sin. It started out as lust and turned into adultery and it ended with murder. And he's thinking it's done, it's covered, it's gone. But in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan. And in the conversation, Nathan real, or David realizes the wrong that he has done. In that moment of realization, he knew what had taken place. See, sin has a way of doing that. Sin will blind us during the time of it, and it will blind us to the consequences of it. It will cloud our minds from, in, in judgment. It just takes over. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David finally responds to Nathan. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. But I love that that's not the end of the story. Because look at Nathan's response. So David says, I have sinned against God. I admit my sin to God, and I know that he is disappointed in me. I know that he is he's going to, he's judging me. But Nathan said to David, the Lord has also 
put away your sin. See, the Lord forgives. It doesn't matter how bad it's been. It doesn't matter what sin we've committed. The Lord will forgive. Now, David has to face the consequences. Look at verse 14. Nathan's response. Nevertheless, because by this you've scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And if you keep reading, you find that David went through the judgment for his sin and faced the death of the child. But through that, David still knew, I'm loved by the Lord. His next son is named Solomon. And in verse 24, it talks about that David remembered that the Lord loved him. David knew of forgiveness. He knew of the new beginnings that come with it. Over in Jonah, we have uh, probably a very famous verse in chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. To that disappointed and chastised prophet Jonah, God came to him a second time. And these second chances are only because of God's grace and God's mercy. Over in the New Testament, we have the weep, weeping and broken disciple Peter. We have Jesus appearing to him privately and restoring him. And so I say this morning, have you failed God miserably? Is, is it, have, you, have you looked back and you said, I've just walked so far away from him. Have I felt the effects of sin upon me? Then God is a God of new beginnings. You think, how can I begin again? You begin again by looking at Christ. You begin again by, number two, taking a focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is a God of new beginnings. Take a focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. The first thing that the leaders here, Joshua and Zerubbabel, did when they saw the pile of rubble that had once been the temple, they decided, notice in verse 2, to rebuild the altar. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josedek, and thanks to Chris for trying to read these words, these names. These are not very popular names for kids today. Uh, Joshua, the son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and with his kinsmen. And notice it says, they built the altar of the God of Israel. They rebuilt the altar. They realized the importance of the altar was to do what? It was to offer sacrifices on it. They knew their connection to God, their reconnection to God, was through the altar. And it needed to be restored first. And actually, if you look down in verse 6, when you put the timeline together, because in verse 6 it says, from the first day of the seventh month, it actually, their building of the altar took place before the events of chapter 3, when the Jews gather in Jerusalem. So that when the Jews return into the city, rising up in the middle of the rubble, they see a restored altar. The foundation hasn't been laid at this point, but the site of the altar was there. But why an altar? Why not begin with the walls of the temple or even the foundation? Why not the gates? Why do they begin with the altar? Because this morning I, I noticed that our first fundamental need, if we want to draw near to God, if we want to take a new beginning with God, our first need is the forgiveness of our sins. See, Leviticus tells us that God designated the altar at that time as the one bringing the sacrifice would be accepted before the Lord. Over in Exodus 29, it says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year. And then later on in that chapter, verse 43, he says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar, Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. And then he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In Exodus, God told his people, it's at the altar that I'm going to meet you. I'm going to dwell with you. Joshua here and Zerubbabel recognize this is the place. This is the most important part of the restoration back to God. And you might be saying, but pastor, there's no altar up here. Well, we have these steps that we call the altar, right? 
But there's no sacrifices here. If you go back even further in our church, a year or so ago, we studied another book. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the temple, the entire Old Testament system was pointing to something greater. And we studied the book of Hebrews. We saw that the greater person, the greater sacrifice was Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. That Christ, our high priest, he entered into the spiritual temple of heaven with his own blood to pay the penalty for sins. And he doesn't do it over and over again like the priest did. But in Hebrews 9, it says he doesn't offer himself repeatedly for when he would have to suffer repeatedly for the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, the end of ages, to put away sin. This is what this means. In order for you to have a new beginning with God, it means coming to the place where Christ offered that sacrificial blood, the cross. That we have to begin at the cross. And as a, as a believer, we have to begin anew at the cross as well. And I will say this this morning, if you've never begun with God, if you've never been developed a relationship with God, then you have to begin at the cross. You recognize that your sin you could never pay for, but that Christ took your place. And that only by trusting in his gift, only by trusting in him fully for your salvation, will you ever truly be forgiven. And you say, well, pastor, I'm, I've been a believer for years, but I've just been so disconnected. Then I say, you begin anew back at the cross. It doesn't matter if the sin is recent. It doesn't matter if you've lived in this for the last decade. You can still begin at the cross. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Admit that you have sinned. Seek His forgiveness at the cross. And I would even go even further to say that it's not just a one-time thing at the cross, but it's to live daily at the cross. To, Paul says, I die daily. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. A new beginning takes a focus on the cross of Jesus. Number three, a new beginning takes a determination to obey His Word. So we have the two men building the altar in verse 2. But notice at the end of verse 2, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 3, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening and they kept a feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required when i first read i'm like how did Yeshua and zerubbabel know that they're supposed to do this how do they know that it's time to celebrate the feast of booths well if you look at these phrases you'll see this common familiar thing as it is written as it is written according to the rule they just make up this stuff they didn't just do it to their own preferences. They didn't go out and poll the people. Hey, guys, what do you think we should do? Should we build the, the laver, the basin of water first? No. They read and they said, this is what we have to do. Maybe, maybe it's time for a change. Maybe the old way has been destroyed. The temple's destroyed. Why not make it something different? Why not do it how we want to do it? My brother's been building his, his dream home. And it's all laid out. We got there. We, my, my other brother and I, we helped nail some trim and we helped him with building doors for his cabinets and everything. So he's building this beautiful house and it's just how they want it. And I told him, it's just how you want it now. Because I guarantee you when you go in and you've lived there for a certain number of weeks and months, you're going to be like, oh, I wish we had put that over there. I wish this was over here. Right? Why? It's something new. Let's just make it something different. 
So the temple's destroyed. Let's build it better. Why do we have to keep on doing these bloody sacrifices? Why not change it to make it more contemporary or more modern or a new way of thinking? That's not what they did. They went back to the word of God and they said, this is what God's word says. This is what we're going to do. And so when it comes to us and how we're to live as God's people, if we want to start this year anew, how do we do it? We go to God's word and we obey what he commands us to do. See, his moral commandments don't adapt to the moral standards of our time. God has not softened his view on premarital sex. God has not softened his view on homosexuality in spite of what modern society feels. God has not softened his view on what abortion is. Just because society says it's okay doesn't mean God says it's okay. The standard that we need to live by is does it line up with what the Bible says? Does it glorify God as He is revealed in His Word? Does it promote holiness in God's people? Does it line up with Him? I can't change God to make Him fit my mold. I came across a quote, and I really liked it. John Piper said, If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. This is not evangelism, but deception. See, the God of the Bible is very clear on what it takes to follow him. And he doesn't change because we feel like it should be different. If I'm going to take 2020 and begin this year new, then I must understand that I should obey the word of God. Obedience and faith go hand in hand with each other. I believe God and I follow him. So new beginning starts at the cross, and it takes an obedience to his word. And you can't have one without the other. See, if you obey his word without beginning at the cross, then you, you're basically a Pharisee. And if, if you begin at the cross and you don't follow by obeying his word, then you have what James says is a dead faith. Now, number four. So in order to begin anew, it doesn't matter how bad it's been, how low it's been, you can always start anew. It takes a focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. It takes an obedience to his word. Number four, it takes a commitment to build his house. It takes a commitment to build his house. Verse six, we already mentioned it, but I want to go back. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And then Ezra writes this phrase, but... The foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. The altar's good, and it makes mention that this is missing, the temple. As a matter of fact, in this passage, the word temple is mentioned three times. The word Lord's house is mentioned five times. And if you study the Old Testament, you have the temple or the house of the Lord was the place where he dwelled among his people, where he showed his glory And his people went there to offer sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. They offered for thanksgiving and they offered to praise him for his goodness to them. It was a a place of celebration. It was a place where all of Israel would gather three times a year. The Passover, Pentecost, and then here the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And the restored nation cannot properly worship God until they rebuilt his house. And throughout the remainder of the book of Ezra, we have this story of the reconstruction of the temple, as well as the reconstruction of the spiritual people, the the spirit of the people and their hearts. Now, you say, well, wait, we're not in a temple. The remarkable thing is, as God's church, we are now his temple. Where he doesn't dwell in a building, he dwells in us. He walks among us. Listen, listen, this building is not God's house. It's simply the place where God's house gathers to worship. We are God's house. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I don't have to go to a building to be close to God. I can be close with God in my closet. I can be close with God in my bedroom. I can be close with God anywhere because he dwells within me. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then over in Ephesians, he says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I say that we are God's house, that we can meet in private homes like in our small groups. We can meet in a park. We can meet in a barn. We can meet in a cathedral. It's not the place that's sacred. It's you and I. We are the temple of God. So the application is, if if we want to make a new beginning with God, don't try to do this alone. Yes, I understand that, that that beginning starts as a private matter, that you go to the Lord and you confess your sin. We don't, we don't do public confessions or things like that, that we, we privately offer confessions and, and, and that we personally appropriate the blood of Christ in our own personal life. And I understand that we personally need to get into God's word daily, that we can't just go to church on Sunday and expect that that's good for us, that we can't just go to small group, but that we are doing it personally. And I say, yes, that's where we start. But once you've started there, you absolutely should be built together with others. We do have this building. I'm not saying throw the building out. We do have the building because we gather together as a body of believers totally committed to one another and to God. And without that, we're going to be overwhelmed by sin. We're going to be overwhelmed by our flesh, by the world. So we commit together. We join together. We build the house together. But how do we do that? Well, if you start in verse 8 and you go to the end of the chapter, you actually have a a fast forward of time. In verse 8, it says the second year after they're coming to the house of God. In the second month, this is when they started building. They started building it together. So how do we build God's house? As we finish this morning, I want to show you a few things from this passage. First of all, If we're to build together the house of God, it requires courage to stand together in this world. It requires courage to stand together in this world. As we studied the book of Daniel, we talked about living with hope in a hostile world. And I say, yes, our world is becoming more and more hostile. And it requires courage to stand together in this world. If you look at verse 3. You'll notice the phrase says, fear was on them because of the people of the land. And I'm certain that most of us have seen the video from the church in Texas just a few short weeks ago. And the courage of the people in that church who stood against the evil of the man who wanted to destroy them. It takes courage. You can't tell me that we don't live in a hostile world. You can't tell me that the church is safe from that. It's not. The Bible says fear was on them. These words imply that there's this threatening situation that it brought to their homes this time. And they needed, therefore, of the access to God, which was promised at the altar. They were fearful. And so they go to God. God, help us. Some may have focused on building a strong militia. But these men knew that the help from man is in vain if the Lord is not in the right place. They put God first by rebuilding his altar. We seek the kingdom of God first. Courage to stand together. Courage doesn't mean a lack of fear. It means I have the resolve to stand firm in threatening circumstances because my trust is in the Lord. Jesus tells his followers in Luke 12, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, fear God more than you fear any evil in this world. And it doesn't mean fear God in the sense of, oh no, he's going to destroy me. It's a fear God of recognizing that God is above anything in this world. 
So that Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, and if I die, that's gain because I'm in heaven. So you may have to take a stand alone, but it's easier when you can stand with others. When you can stand with other believers who support you with encouragement and prayer. We stand together. That's how we build our church. That's how we build our house. Secondly, look at verse 7. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. They gave. They gave money. They gave food and drink and oil for the labor, for the materials to rebuild the temple. And of course, I understand it takes money to continue to have electricity, to have comforts that this building has to offer. But as I mentioned, this building is not the house of God, that we are the house of God. So we build the house of God by being resources to others, by helping one another, by coming alongside and saying, hey, how can I help you? How can I give of my time to serve you? How can I, how can I minister to you? When someone is in the hospital or someone has a baby or someone who's going through a difficult trial, we are there to walk with them, to provide with them, to give of ourselves to them. We must all be working and giving together. Giving of our resources. If we're going to build the house, number three, it requires working in unity under godly leadership. Working in unity. Look back at verse 1. I love this phrase. When the seventh month came and the children were in the town, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. You know what that means? That means although there's upwards to 50,000 of them, they were all standing together as one. All of them looking to God as one man. As a matter of fact, if you go down to verse 9, you see Joshua with his sons and brothers and Cadmio and his sons and the sons of Judah together working. Shows pictures of families standing united. You know, because unity is essential. Because the enemy outside would divide us. And so the leaders would delegate the work so that it doesn't just fall on a few. That any work of God is for the work of all of us working together in harmony under godly leadership. It's because when the enemy wants to stop the work, oftentimes he will disrupt the unity. What begins to happen? Leaders start to compromise truth for the sake of keeping it unified. But that always leads to greater disasters. Leaders can react in the flesh by lashing out in anger. Workers will use it to vent their frustrations and there becomes this breaking down of unity. And gossip and false rumors start spreading through the body because people listen to those who are disgruntled. They don't go to the source to get the truth. And all of this, Satan has his way. The body is hurt. If we want to walk new with God, if we want to build the house of God, we need to preserve the unity of spirit. We need to preserve the bond of peace. It requires unity. Number four, it requires an emphasis on worship. Look at verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the sounds of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Worship involves a personal and corporate focus on God, an affirmation by faith of his goodness and covenantal love. And I love it because verse 10 talks about the trumpets and the cymbals. Can you imagine that? Like we have beautiful guitar, bass guitar, piano, uh, but he has a trumpet and he has cymbals. So it's like the do-do-do-do and tsh, tsh, it's like, oh, yay. And I know some of you now are thinking like elementary band concert. You're like, oh. This is not my idea of worship. Worship does require skillful musicians. But if your focus is on them, you're into entertainment, 
not worship. Worship praises God and God alone. Remember, these people, these people had just come home after 70 years. Many of them, some of them had been in captivity. And this younger generation who, who had seen their older family die in captivity. And, and now they take this perilous journey back home and they get home. And now Jerusalem is laid before them in shambles. Instead of being focused on themselves, they turn their attention to God. They praise God. Instead of grumbling and complaining about their circumstances, they say, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Can you sing that? Some of us, if, if, the, if the temperature of the building is not what we want, oh, I quit. For he is good. These people are standing in rubble, looking at an altar, seeing the foundation start to be laid, and they say, God is good. And his love endures forever. The other thing I mentioned about worship is notice the emotions. Keep reading in verse 11. All the people shouted with a great shout. And they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. But many of the priests, the old men who had seen the first, that they wept in the verse 13 so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. It speaks of shouting. It speaks of weeping. Some of us are a bit too restrained in our worship. Like if we raise our hand in worship, people are think we're trying to ask a question. Listen, I understand you could go too far, but if our focus is on our great, faithful, loving God and the truth of his word, how can we not be moved? How can we not just be overwhelmed and shout for joy of who God is? We worship. And lastly, to build the house of God, it requires a spirit of cooperation and understanding between both the old and the young. Do you notice that at the end of the passage? The young people are thrilled that they see the foundation of the temple being laid. All they've ever known was Babylon and its temples of idols. And now they're back in God's land. They're back in the land of promise. They're back in the capital city. The foundation of the house of the temple of God is now laid. And they've never seen anything like that. And they're so excited they shout for joy. And there are these old timers. It even says it, old men who had seen the first one. See, the old, the first temple, Solomon's temple, and you can study this historically, Solomon's temple was one of the most beautiful temples ever to be constructed, and it's destroyed. And when they come back and they build this new temple, they look at it and they're like, it's not the same. It's much smaller. It doesn't have the, the pomp and circumstance. It doesn't have the beauty that the new one, that the first one had. And they said, we've seen something greater. We saw Solomon's temple. And this little foundation from the rubble, this is not the same. And so while the, old, the young people are shouting for joy, the old people are weeping in grief. And I say there are two dangers to that. Two results that could happen. See, the old guys could have discouraged the younger ones from this new beginning. And that would have been tragic because they have to start and even though this new beginning doesn't match the former glory, it was a start. And this is where God is now working. Wait, but this has changed, but that has changed. But God is still working. And the other side of that, the young people could ignore the wisdom and experience from the old. In which case, you know what would happen? The mistakes would happen again. The repeated failures would happen again. The old people need the enthusiasm and energy and joy of the young people. And the young people need the wisdom, maturity, and experience of the old people. Listen, we have a beautiful church of little children all the way up to years old. We need all ages in our church. And we should all learn from each other. The young learn from the elders. The elders learn from the youngers. And we walk together in harmony and unity and cooperation 
and understanding. See, 2020 has just begun. We're on day five. A new beginning. Some of us have already failed in our New Year's resolutions. And I said, if I'm making a resolution that's going to fail, then my resolution is to get fatter this year, because mainly I'll fail. Right? No. New, this is a new year. What kind of new beginning is this year going to be with you and God? It doesn't matter what 2019 does. It's done. Yeah, it was such a horrible year of, of failures, a horrible year of trials. Well, this is 2020. And if I'm not mistaken, everyone in here is still alive, hopefully. It's still here another day. And this could be start of another beautiful relationship with him. Remember, it begins at the cross. It remembers what Christ did for us and his offer of true forgiveness. It takes a commitment to actually obeying what his word says. And I will say that that takes diligence and dedication. And we're going to look at next week. Finally, it means that we commit to building God's house. Not the building, but the people. We do it personally, and we do it corporately together. Let's make God the God of 2020, the God of our life, the God of our church. Let's pray. God, today we come before you as your people. Lord, some of us in 2019 faced dark valleys. We faced difficult times. And God, I pray that, that those of us who saw these difficult valleys and others, I pray that we would surround them with love and encouragement that we would join together. God, that we would commit to our church, that we would commit to faithfully uh, being encouragement, faithfully being in attendance, faithfully walking together. Father, we know it's because of your son that we have this opportunity. That we can walk through valleys, that we can, that we can uh, come out of sin and ask for forgiveness and you are faithful to forgiveness. And that, that having that forgiveness doesn't give us an opportunity to just sin more. No, God, but it's, it's we who have died in the flesh, that we, we live in Christ. It's not us who lives, but Christ who lives within us. God, I don't know what 2020 has to offer this body of believers. I don't know what trials are ahead. And I don't know who might not be here in 2021. But God, I pray that you would, that you would challenge us to be faithful and walk with you daily. We love you so much. It's in your precious holy name we pray. Amen.